All right. Thank you and welcome everyone to worship today. It's not good for the man to be alone. What did God really mean when he said that? Now, we use that at weddings all the time, of course, but the application of that statement goes way beyond a marriage relationship. It kind of underscores our deep need, the need all of us have for meaningful relationships. The American Institute of Stress has studied the powerful value of community. And they report that a sense of community is essential not only for a meaningful life, but for good health. For example, in one study, 232 patients were carefully monitored and studied who had gone through some sort of cardiac surgery. And of those 232, 21 of those patients died within six months. And so the question was, what contributed toward that. Significant mortality predictors that emerged were, and I quote, a lack of participation in social or community groups and the absence of strength and comfort from religion. The AIS also reports that social activity can prevent cardiac mortality, or predict it rather, as strongly as elevated cholesterol levels. Their studies show that social isolation contributes to illness and death as much as smoking does, which led one doctor to humorously quip, if you feel you must smoke, for goodness sakes, don't do it alone. (laughs) The value of community. Now, all of those studies that I've referred to just accentuate one truth that we all already know, right? The happiest people on the planet are those who have good friendships. God has created within every one of us this need for meaningful connection. Now, you know, families used to be, as a rule, closer than they are today. Life just allowed it. Life on the farm years ago was a lot slower. Life in the suburbs or the city years ago was slower. When families sat down and ate an evening meal together and they shared their lives and talked about what was going on, they lingered over the dinner table. But today, we gobble down some fast food either in a noisy restaurant or in the car on the way to another frenetic activity. There used to be this thing called neighborhoods. We still call them that, but they're not really neighborhoods. There aren't many sidewalks anymore. Very few people even know who their neighbors are or know much about their neighbors. People used to have conversations over hedgerows, but now there are privacy fences. People used to have front porch swings where folks would wave from the street or the sidewalk and come over and and share a little conversation but the front porch swing has been replaced by the garage door opener. And people slip in and out of their homes without getting to know the people around them. 
We kick off a brand new series today called A Guide to the Good Life. And in this very first message, I want to start by highlighting one of the most important ingredients of all in the really good life that God designed for us, and that is simply meaningful relationships. You see, I want this church to be a place. We want grace to be a place where you experience what I would call authentic community. Not pseudo-community, not just kind of staring at the back of somebody's head, not kind of just waving at someone as you pass in the parking lot. We want it to be a place where you have a circle of friends where you're cared for, you're encouraged to mature in your walk with Christ. We want it to be a place where you can take off your mask and really stop pretending. We want you to know and be known. Now, as I read the New Testament, I'm convinced that the early church in Jerusalem was a place like I'm describing. Would you listen to this description of that early church? All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love to read that passage because it reminds me that there was a a big group, over 3,000 that met in the temple courts, chapter 2 of Acts tells us. But we also know that they had meaningful relationships because they met together in their homes and they shared their lives together when they were in trouble. And they rejoiced with one another and they wept with one another. Acts chapter 12 relates that when Peter was imprisoned, many in the church came together in the house of Mary, the mother of John, and intensely prayed for his protection. So it's obvious that the church was meant to be a fellowship and not just an audience. And so let's talk about that today as we unpack this whole idea of meaningful relationships and why it's such an important ingredient to the good life that God has designed for every one of us. So let me ask a series of questions today, and and let's try to answer those. First of all, what is meant by meaningful relationships? What do we mean when we say that even? Well, Jesus said in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus viewed his followers as a community that would have a genuine love for each other. But what's involved in that? What did he have in mind? Well, let me mention a few things. I think, first of all, the church should be a place where the quality of some of your relationships is moving from casual toward intimate. Now, most of us have a number of casual friends. And you know what? You can have a lot of those. These are people you recognize, you know them by name, uh, you know a little bit about them, maybe you see them pretty regularly, you say hi, you greet one another, and you enjoy each other's company. You can also have a handful of close relationships. 
These are people you may have meals with. You may meet in each other's homes occasionally. You, you know a lot about each other and so on. But you can only have a few intimate friends. These are people who know just about everything about you and they love you anyway. You are blessed if you've got two or three friends like that. Therapist Will Miller puts it like this. He asks, who in your life has refrigerator rights? I like this question. He explains it. He says, who has the right to come into your home and without asking, just go in the refrigerator and make a sandwich? That's either an intimate friend or a person with a lot of nerve, I'll tell you right now. Who has that right in your life? Now, we're not suggesting that you develop a lot of intimate friends. Frankly, it's impossible. You only have so much bandwidth to work with, only so much time, only so many things you can be committed to. Jesus, it seems, in the Gospels, had only three disciples that were sort of on that inner circle, Peter, James, and John. There were 12 that you might call close friends, the other disciples and some of the others that went around with them in their disciple band. Not everyone is intended to be an intimate friend. But here's my concern as we kick off this new series. You see, there's a lot of people, and I know this to be true, who don't have any intimate friends at all. Not in this church, not anywhere else. There's no one who really knows who you are. No one who knows your name when you come to church. No one who's glad you came. The church is just like an audience to you. It's just an event that happens. And brothers and sisters, if that's you, that's not the way God designed it. He wants far more for you than that, far more than just an audience kind of thing. He wants you to experience community. Second, the church should be a place where the extent of your relationships is expanding from local to universal. You may start off in your relationship with Christ and you know only one or two people, maybe someone who invited you or or helped you find a relationship with Christ. And then you join a small group and you get to know a dozen people. Maybe you go to some Bible class at the church that it offers and you get to know 30 or 40 people. And so your circle of relationships is expanding. But then, ah, then you go on a mission trip. And you go to some other country where perhaps you've never been and you get to know some Christian people there. And you agree that you're gonna pray for one another although you're so far away and you live so far away. And before you know it, you go to a Christian conference, then you go to a concert, and you meet some new friends, and you've got people all over the world that are praying for you. You know what? I've got friends and acquaintances in the Philippines, in the Netherlands, in Germany, in the UK, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Korea, in Japan, all over South America, in Mexico, and even in America, U.S., that are praying for me. I got Christian friends all over the place 
because I've had the joy of going around to all kinds of different places and meeting people from around the world who love and serve Jesus Christ. We want you to get an ever-expanding network of Christians. It's amazing how God will use that to encourage you. Third, the church should be a place where the focus of your relationships is changing from clergy to non-clergy. Most surveys that have been done all across the U.S. show that the number one reason, catch this now, the number one reason most people choose a church is the preaching. That's, that's just axiomatic. That, that's just been the case for decades, at least. But you know what? The number one reason most people stay in a church, it's the relationships, You see, preaching can become commonplace after a while. It's the relationships that matter more over time. And I hope you like those who preach at Grace on the weekend, at all of our different locations, at all our different congregations. I I hope you like them. I hope you appreciate the word of God that they bring to you. I hope you benefit from it, but I pray that we can all be moving from a sort of preacher-centered or staff-centered experience to really getting to know one another. That is so vital to a healthy church. If we don't do that, it's very easy for this sort of preacher popularity click thing to begin to develop. That happened in Paul's day. He writes in 1 Corinthians 1, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And then he asks this rhetorical question. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the obvious answer to that is no. Only Christ died for you. Follow him. Dr. Robert Burns was the popular preacher of the Peach Tree Christian Church in Atlanta some years ago. And he was such a popular man, a great preacher, and the church did not announce when he was not preaching. And so here's what began to happen. It became commonplace for scores of people to come to church, participate in worship for a while, look around for Dr. Burns, see he's not there. They would receive communion, and then after communion, a whole bunch of people would get up and just leave. It became quite embarrassing. And one week, the worship leader said, after we take communion today, our associate minister will be preaching for us. Those of you who are here to worship Dr. Burns may leave at that time. Those of you who are here to worship Jesus Christ may stay. Obviously, no one left that Sunday. And as you mature in Christ, your focus should change from any human leader to Christ, from fellowship with the staff to fellowship with one another. Now let's ask another important question on this journey. Why are meaningful relationships important? Because as you sit and listen to this, some of you are going, well, uh, Pastor, you don't know how big my family is. (laughs) Man, I got so many cousins. I got so many aunts and uncles, so many siblings. I got this big old family connection here. I, I I feel cared for. Thank you very much. And you do. And some of you have a lot of friends. and You have people out there who just really care about you. So you, you hear this topic and you just don't see the need for it. 
But here's the distinctive I'm trying to present to you now. I want you to see the need for some Christian friends. And thank God, if your friends out there or your family is Christian, wonderful, wonderful. You've got a great support system. But you need Christian friends around you in the church. And I want to share with you some of the advantages of that. First, Christian friends will encourage you when you're doing right. By the way, did you know one of the main reasons we're supposed to have fellowship together is to kind of lift each other up? The Bible says in Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but catch this next phrase, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You need encouragement to really live the Christian life. And so when you come together with other Christian friends, uh, you're reminded that you're not the only person in the world who marches to the beat of a different drummer. You're reminded you're not the only person who has as an aspirational goal to become a very generous individual. You believe in giving back. You're not the only one who believes that. You're not the only one who believes in appropriately guiding and disciplining your children. You're not the only one who believes that the world is in a mess and only God can get us through. You find out, you're reminded, you're not the only one who believes that people really matter to God. Because you see brothers and sisters all around you who are marching to the beat of that same heavenly drummer. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Second, Christian friends will pray for you when you face trials. Now, again, you may have lots of friends out there who care and sympathize, but there's something powerful about real disciples of Jesus praying for you. Scripture says in James 5, therefore confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Do you have people like that in your life, praying, lifting you up? Al Ford is a, a dear friend and a wonderful leader in our church, and he served as an elder, a small group leader, and many other ways. And when Al's wife, Deb, passed away less than a year ago, when she became sick, friends and people in church began to rally around. I, I've never seen anything like it. It was great. Uh, small groups came together and mowed the yard and did some basic landscape maintenance. Uh, people asked how they could help. People brought meals for months, two or three evenings a week on average. Uh, brothers in Christ who know and love Al texted him and called him and emailed him and said, look, is there anything we can do, brother? We love you. I prayed for you this morning. Hope you're having a great day in spite of the, the ordeal that you and Deb are, are going through. And from my perspective, frankly, it was a clinic on community, to be honest with you. And Al says that he felt incredibly supported. Now, what's going to happen when the bottom falls out of your life? When you have that operation, when you get that bad news from the doctor, when a loved one dies, you're going to want someone to be there to pray for and support you. And I simply am asking you today, just because I care about you, do you have those kinds of meaningful relationships? Have you built those kind of friendships where 
People are going to be there. Third, Christian friends will confront you when you're wrong. Now, I'll tell you, here's where the story begins to take a radical right turn from your unbelieving friends. Matthew 18 talks about loving enough to confront. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. When your language starts slipping, when your attitude gets sour, when you ignore your mate, when your values erode, Christian friends will be the first to discern that and to love you enough to start asking some hard questions. Others may see nothing wrong, but Galatians 6.1 reminds us, brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And friends who don't share your Christian values are not very likely to do that. But close Christian friends will muster up the courage to confront because they love you that much. Fourth, Christian friends will withdraw fellowship from you if you're defiant in your disobedience. Now, what I'm about to say here is so weird to many people today, they they don't get it. But this is the way genuine followers of Jesus in the church are supposed to operate. Paul chastised the Corinthian church for not confronting and dealing with a church member who was involved in blatant, high-handed sin and incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And he writes, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality of you, among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? And have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? And then verse 5 says, Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What is all of that about? The Bible teaches that if a Christian gets entangled in the gross sins of the flesh and refuses to repent, fellowship is to be withdrawn so that his sin will be underscored in his loneliness. You may go, dude, that's not a plus at all. Man, I want people who stand by me no matter what I'm doing. Do you really? Surely not if you're a Christian. Surely if you're a genuine follower of Jesus, you want his best for you, not just to be able to do your own thing, don't you? That's a mark of a true follower of Christ. I say to people all the time, look, if you see me out of line, get in my face and tell me. Please care enough about me to do that. But that is so unpleasant. Most people, and indeed even many churches, totally shy away from that today. Again, friends who don't share your Christian values are not very likely to make you accountable. They'll just say, it's none of my business. But if you're a Christian, if you're a true Christian in the body of Christ, in a church with people, it is your business. A little yeast, Paul says in the same chapter, works through the whole batch of dough. We need to look to one another and say, listen, brother, listen, sister, we're called to a higher code than that. And indeed we are. First John says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And over and over again, we need to be reminded, the Bible is a code book, folks. It's this incredibly high bar that God has set, and he's called us to help one another live that life. Christian friends next will forgive you and restore you when you repent. With this Corinthian offender repented, even though his sin was heinous, Paul instructed the church to forgive and restore him, lest the punishment be too severe. If you deeply offend people in the world, you know what? They're likely to hold a grudge. They probably won't speak. They may keep you at arm's distance for a long time. But genuine followers of Christ who really understand the grace of God in their lives are pretty quick to forgive and restore. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I've seen Christian people forgive and include people who violated their trust. They'll say, God has extended grace to me. I've got to extend it to others. But I want to add one other little benefit before we move on to that final major point and ask a final question of how we can do this. And I want to add this, that I believe that one of the benefits of Christian fellowship is that it's a positive testimony to the world. Jesus said, by this, all men are going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The world isn't very impressed with our buildings or our doctrine. In fact, they're pretty put off by the doctrine many times. But boy, they take note when Christian people love and care for one another. Our dear brother, Glenn Frank, who many of you knew, passed away less than two months ago. His death was sudden and shocking. And uh, because Glenn was so beloved, the funeral service here was, it was just a buzz with people here to show their respects. But an interesting story came out of that funeral service that uh, I've gotten permission to share. A man was there named John Bishop, and he gave permission to share the story. He met Glenn in June of 2014, about a year ago. And he was fishing at Lock 7 on the Mohawk River, where a lot of people gather to fish. Glenn loved to fish, and Glenn was a great conversationalist. Glenn engaged John in conversation. And Glenn didn't realize it then, but John had lost his job of 12 years. He was suffering the ill effects of Lyme disease at that time. He was so down and discouraged, John Bishop had a plan to take his own life. He was just, he was just kind of doing a little fishing before he took himself out of the world. But Glenn Frank engaged him in conversation, began to talk to him, and Glenn was a good listener. He would ask questions and really listen. And long story short, John just poured his whole life out to Glenn and talked about how defeated he felt and how guilty he felt for many things he'd done. And and Glenn Frank was the agent of grace in John's life. Glenn also at that time shared a little Steps to Peace with God track with John Bishop, prayed a prayer with him. And at the funeral service, less than two months ago, John Bishop reached in his wallet and pulled out a crumpled track that he carries with him everywhere he goes. And he credits God using Glenn Frank for turning his life 
around. This picture that you see of John with the track is just a picture that was snapped that morning at the funeral. And by the way, the story gets even better. Not only is John Bishop going on strong now because of how God used this relationship in his life, but the guys, the other guys that were in Glenn's small group, they met every Tuesday night, and they said to John, wow, this is amazing, John. We didn't know anything about this. Glenn never told us. Hey, listen, we're going to go out to Lock 7 this coming Tuesday instead of the normal place we meet. Would you, be, would you like to join us? And with tears streaming down his face, John Bishop accepted that invitation. And the next Tuesday evening, there he was. And here's a picture of the group of guys that gathered at Lock 7. There he was with his dog. He was there to fish and talk and have some good conversation and spend some time remembering Glenn. Now, here's my point. Folks, I wish everybody had relationships like that. That is special. I wish the church were a fellowship that's so attractive, so contagious, so loving, so fun. The world would be drawn to Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer wrote, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community, he says, is the final apologetic. But now for these final minutes, let's just get real practical here. And let's ask, how are meaningful relationships developed? Romans 14, 19 says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. How can we get that kind of mutual edification going in our relationships? How can we do this? We need to be willing to make every effort, as Paul says, to do that. And so I want to start listing a few things. There are a lot of these in your notes, I believe, today. So if you want to jot some ideas down, that would be great. Number one would be sign up for a small group Bible study meeting in your neighborhood. Just try it and see if you don't get to know some people. Now, I want to camp out right here for a few minutes. I'm going to spend way more time on this one than I will any of the others, so don't panic. But I want to make a a comment or two about this because we recently changed our covenant membership expectation and the way it's worded. And so I want to bring a little clarity to that. For 21 years now, our membership expectation, number five, by the way, our membership is meaningful at Grace. We agree to these positive disciplines that we're going to engage in and keep one another accountable for. Good biblical stuff. It's stuff that healthy Christians do anyway, but we just get explicit about it here because Christianity in America, by and large, is so weak and insipid. We we just want to make sure that people understand a little bit of what healthy Christians do. And so here's the way it's read I will join and consistently participate in a small group for my spiritual growth and pastoral care. That's what it's read for about 21 years. And recently, it has been changed to, I will build meaningful relationships that lead to spiritual growth. Now, why the change? Well, it may shock some of you that I'm the one who wrote these seven expectations over 21 years ago now. So, in other words, they didn't arrive from heaven on golden tablets, okay? So, that should make you suspect right there. 
I wrote all of these, and, and from the time I wrote down number five, I felt uncomfortable about it. Here's why I felt uncomfortable. Because it's the only one of the five that focused on a method rather than a principle. All the others focused on a great biblical principle. Number five had a principle in it, but it, it focused on a method, the method of small groups. And so, eh, we need to change that. But our elders at the time loved it. Small groups were all the rage at the time. And here was my main concern. We were about 200 people at the time, and I knew I can't care for all these people. We got to get this biblical one another thing going. We got to get people in groups where they're caring for one another, which is what's supposed to happen anyway. And so we felt that it's time to change this and restate it in a way that just accentuates the principle the way it was meant. Here's the analogy I've been using to help people get it. The analogy I've been using is to compare small groups to bicycles. And if the principle behind number five were transportation, you know, moving people from point A to point B, it's like for 21 years we've been saying, uh, we do that with bicycles. How do people move around here in Christ? Bicycles. And if somebody said, well, can I walk? We go, no, we're a bicycle church. You need to get a bicycle Somebody said, well, uh, haven't you guys heard about planes, trains, and automobiles? No, bicycle. Say it with me, bicycle. We're a bicycle church, no plan B. That's what we do. We're all about bicycles. And so after 21 years of saying that, I've just grown increasingly comfortable with the bicycle thing when we all know, and we've always known, that there are many time-proven methods for helping people move from point A to point B in the Christian life. So we changed the wording because the principle has always been meaningful relationships, catalytic relate. I hope you still stay in your small groups. I am. I'm in two. I plan to stay in them. I still believe it's an amazing way to grow and meet people if the group is well-led. And some of you go, but pastor, I heard you less than a year ago say there's no plan B. We're beefing up our efforts for small groups. We're passionate about this thing. Why did you say that? Because I am an idiot. (laughs) No, seriously, we want so desperately for people to get in meaningful relationships. I thought maybe if we just hit it a little harder, maybe if we just pump the troops up a little bit more, maybe finally people will begin to gauge in meaningful relationships. And so I said, there's no plan B. I just got to ask you to give me a mulligan on that one. By the way, have you ever said anything in your life that later you regretted saying? Anybody? Thanks. I have, and that was one of them, okay? I really shouldn't have said that, so please allow us a do-over, a mulligan on that. We're still gonna go after small groups with a passion, but we're also going to accentuate many other methods, all right? I think you get it, all right? So small groups is a great way to do it. Next, sign up and show up for a grace in action serving opportunity. One of the sweetest forms of fellowship you can have is coming along other brothers and sisters in a practical way and helping people in need. Here's a good one. Make your home a place of hospitality. 
I've been reading a book this week by Leonard Sweet. He's a great writer called From Tablet to Table. Sweet says, and I quote, there's one thing that would dramatically change the world we live in and help return us to our rootedness in Christ. Bring back the table. If we were to make the table the most sacred object of furniture in every home, in every church, in every community, our faith would quickly regain its power and our world would quickly become a better place. The table is the place where identity is born, the place where the story of our lives is retold, reminded, and relived. Well said. Next, If you want to build meaningful relationships, I would suggest you visit a Bible study that's held at church, and if they have name tags, put on a name tag. I know there are going to be at least a couple of wonderful Bible studies held through the summer, and get to know some people. Get a donut. Introduce yourself. Be approachable. Smile and be friendly. Next, speak up when someone asks for prayer requests. Don't sit like a knot on a log. Say, hey, pray for me. I'm facing a really difficult test this week. Or I've got a a, a relational situation. Would you guys just lift me up in prayer? I really need encouragement. And as you get more transparent, people start getting closer to you. Next, during greeting time at church, invite that person who sits near you to join you and your spouse for a meal after church. Say, hey, we we always go to the buffet after church. Would you like to join us today? We'd love to just chat with you, get to know you a little better. Now, it'll scare them to death when you do that. But after they pick themselves up off the floor, they may just say, yes, you'll have a great time. Next, stick around after church. Instead of racing for your car to see if you can beat the traffic, how about trying sticking around for 10 or 15 minutes? And let me tell you something. Contrary to popular thought, The most important time in the entire service, in my opinion, is the 10 minutes immediately following the service. That's the most important time in the whole service. That's when critical conversations tend to happen. That's when people begin to ask each other questions. That's when folks sometimes think about what they've just heard and experienced. And I would urge you to strike up conversations. Next, visit with someone who's sick and tell him or her you're praying for them. Visit them more than once. Approach people who attend church who live in your neighborhood. Knock on the door early one evening. Take a little bag of cookies with you. Don't go inside. Just chat for five minutes. Say hello. But after several brief visits, invite them to your house for dessert or to watch a ball game. Next, volunteer to serve at the church in a practical, service-oriented way with other people. It may be ushering. It may be working in the nursery, helping clean the building, doing practical tasks, working in a classroom. Next, write an encouraging note to someone who's just experienced a victory. Say, congratulations on your son being chosen for the all-star team. That's awesome. I rejoice. And finally, at the very least, at the end of a service, share your name and phone number. If there are people there that you've been worshiping beside for months or even years, but you've never really said hello, most of them will reciprocate with their name and maybe number. So let me close by asking this. Who has refrigerator rights in your house? 
That's usually who your really good friends are. And if you don't have some great Christian friends, you're missing out on so much. We all need meaningful relationships with people who will encourage us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Father, thank you for this amazing church, Grace, that you're building. And thank you, Lord, that through all these years, we've had a passion to see meaningful relationships develop. It's happened often through small groups that are led well and are healthy. It's happened often through mentoring relationships or Bible studies or service opportunities. But Lord, I pray that in the future, you would accelerate this to the point that there would be no genuine believer at grace without some folks in his or her life who have refrigerator rights. Help us to be that kind of an authentic community. And Lord, I pray that you'd show up big in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.